Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Slime Wars on our podcast Gold Talks. This is Nirali and we are here to bring to you words of wisdom from the artist and spiritual teacher EJ Gold. Of course, once the public was shoved out of the shop at that hour that's always darkest, all the merchants counted their currency, headed downstairs into the totally soundproof concrete sub-basement, originally the wine cellar of the restaurant, which had occupied the premises before the Gemini Psychedelic Supermarket. I know what you're going to ask. If they worked in the Psychedelic Supermarket, how come they didn't get stoned the minute they were through with work like you do? I was there to see, and as a professional soldier, I can testify, as I did before the Senate Investigating Committees in 1972, 1974, 1977, 1981, 1987, 1995, 2012, and 2038, I never knowingly personally observed any individual take any illegal drug on or near or under the premises of the Gemini Psychedelic Supermarket occupying the premises at 1708 North Las Palmas Avenue, Hollywood, California, 90028. They were not only professionals in the paraphernalia trade, but many of them were musicians, went with musicians, knew musicians, or thought they were musicians, or thought they went with musicians, see? (laughs) Professionals in the head shop business and the music business are just like any executives the world over. They don't get stoned at work or after work. They arrive stoned or they don't show up at all. Downstairs in that soundproof, solid cement sub-basement chamber below the psychedelic supermarket, you could stack a bunch of giant sun amps and speakers and crank them up all the way. You could surround yourself with a jumble of old, light, tan fabric-covered Fender 6v6 push-pull tube amps, some newer solid-state stuff that everybody wanted to try but nobody liked, a Farfisi organ, and a slew of axes, including what might once have been a Gibson, and a couple of pawn shop nondescripts from Eagle Music. There was the usual Fender fretted bass, mine, the only axe with a stand. It was generally kind of stuck into a nook or corner between stacked speakers on the far end of the chamber. You picked your way over a spiderweb of threaded cables strewn everywhere, showing not a single spare inch of naked concrete, and walked on gilded lumps of stuff and hoped you maintained enough balance that you didn't end up up folded into some bizarre jackknife figure stuck inside the pedal bass drum. So many of us slime molds have ended up in precisely that way that I made a special effort to guide myself to the nearest seat in spite of the fact that I wasn't, and like all slime molds, couldn't ever get drugged. But that didn't prevent me from getting noticeably dizzy in there. It was close, mighty close, and some of those people hadn't bathed since the first time they'd turned on. The secret private jams were always better than the concerts, if you believe the musicians. Most of the concert and session musicians you'd expect to have seen shopping in a psychedelic supermarket on Hollywood Boulevard in AD 1968 remained after hours to jam down in the sub-basement with Gary and his friends. Gary was one of the non-identical twin brothers who owned the shop. He'd been a moderately successful and competent rock guitarist who'd been fortunate enough to get hit by a car, after which he was an instant quadriplegic thus saving Gary the trouble of going through years of interactions with recording company executives and some major label just to achieve the same exact result, but much more slowly. The auto and medical insurance and out-of-court settlement paid for the initial cost of financing the shop and would have been more than sufficient to capitalize a restaurant, which was the original plan, but when the city refused them a beer and wine on-sale license, they scrambled the restaurant plan and went to Plan B 
a psychedelic supermarket by way of flipping the bird to the city for being so uptight. The supermarket was intended to be a sort of one-stop head shop in which each type of item would be sold by a different merchant. Each booth had its own specialties, and no other booth was permitted to carry competing items. There was a long, black-painted, blacklight tunnel, one which any art museum would be proud to own today, in which blacklight-sensitive posters had been stapled onto the plywood ceilings, sides, and raised floor. You walked up the stair and through the blacklight tunnel in stocking or bare feet. The fact is, most of our clientele didn't have shoes or boots to remove anyway. It was the weekend hippies and the valley girls who had the fringe and high white vinyl boots and sandals. Only the most unfreaked out establishment straight wore hush puppies, which everyone used to make fun of, but they were the most comfortable civilian shoe I could find. And us undercover agents weren't permitted to wear our standard issue jump boots, although every darn weirdo anti-war demonstrator had them on. It was the same with the tiger stripe. And that's why our unit switched over to the solid blue battle dress, giving QM a fit and a half before the goods began coming in from the subcontractor, who'd also worked up our vector packs with the ANPRC 4488M3 radio rig webbing and the pouch for the R74M3 tampon grenade. <laughs> Steve had gotten so many orders for his new products and was in such demand as a light show designer that he was forced to rent a huge building in Culver City, where he could manufacture and market as Moonlight, which was a bunch of blinking Christmas bulbs and a translucent glass replacement globe for a wall or ceiling flush-mounted lighting fixture. He also made and sold the very first commercial color organ, which responded to the music you were playing on your stereo. It was a speaker box fronted by translucent patterned plexiglass filled with a large, massive Christmas tree lights wired to react to a variable voltage regulator driven by the stereo amplifier output. Then there was the kaleidoscope, a flashy, plastic-faceted party decoration globe filled with, you guessed it, blinking Christmas lights. He was the one who first discovered that you could make a light show by aiming a laser down into an amplifier-driven speaker laid on its heavy magnetic back, the paper cone loaded with a six-inch-wide pool of mercury. The vibrating speaker would cause ripples in the mercury, breaking the laser beam into dazzling, wildly redirected bursts of radiation, which were then aimed upward toward a slowly revolving faceted mirror ball like the kind Lawrence Welk had dangling from the high ceiling in the Palladium, across from the hullabaloo on Sunset, just east of Vine Street. The intense coherent radiation of the voltage-determined interrupted laser beam emanating from the six-inch puddle of mercury was then redirected back downward into the retinas of the writhing, acid-fried couples, triples, and quadruples wriggling and fruging on the dance floor below. The whole effect was topped off with a multiple show of 16-millimeter film and Kodak carousel automatically timed slide projectors splashing off their images on every available flat surface and hand-painted naked skin on the dance floor. The slides were generally of clouds, some photographed with infrared reversal film producing blue house paint flowing into red house paint, into yellow house paint, into purple house paint, into white house paint, into black house paint, things like that. <laughs> the films were of clouds, close-up of people making love, intercut with many extreme close-ups of a variety of organic things, most of which were mercifully unrecognizable to slime old eyes. Smoke generators and foggers completed the package of the first light shows. 
There were the occasional flashpots and carbide cannons, of course, and once in a while there'd be some actual fireworks on stage. I never depended much on pyrotechnics. They're uncertain at best and far less flashy than straight cheesecake and slapstick for sheer audience approval. And furthermore, explosives are useless for stage security because of the high risk of collateral damage on the bandstand. I always booked a few renegade aliens to do the security for all of our Merlin and the Warlocks rock concerts in the 80s-1960s when we ran that undercover operation against J. Edgar Hoover and we let the turncoat greys finish the 80-1969 tour even after all that bad publicity just because some horse's patoot jumped up on stage at one of our concerts and got himself stabbed to death. Hey, who has time in the middle of a song to check the guy's ID? What can you do but neutralize him and ask questions later? Thank you for listening to our podcast. Gold Talks is produced by Niship Gajjar and sponsored by Jukebox Mind. Voice of EJ Gold, courtesy of gatewaysbooksandtapes.com. For more information, visit idhhb.com. See you in the next episode. Until then, have a good one.